Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. Today is Thursday, October 14th, episode number 122, where we will discuss an article in op-ed written by Chad P. Brown and Douglas A. Irwin in today's New York Times, entitled, Why Does Everyone Suddenly Care About Supply Chains? This should be of particular in to my co-host and father, Michael Harper, who teaches supply chain management at a university here in Colorado. How are you this morning? I'm doing fine. It's a beautiful day. I think it might be cold today. We might even have a little snow, but uh, it's a good way to it's a good uh, way to start a day talking about some very important and timely subjects, the supply chains. Uh, I talk about them every week. Mm-hmm. Now, do you feel like we recently watched a documentary, and this is sort of beside the point before we get into the meat and potatoes of the article, about Dr. Fauci on Disney Plus called Fauci. And mm-hmm. he was someone who'd spent his career working for science, and now he's confronted by a bunch of people that are telling him he's wrong and that he's a villain. Um, a bunch of people that haven't spent any time working on this. Are you prepared now that supply chain is taking sort of center stage in a national discussion, now that we're going to have supply chain disruptions, to have people question your expertise on supply chain management? Because once something becomes in the public consciousness, I think a a feature of today's media and social interaction environment is to tell the experts that they're wrong and that the work they've done over decades uh, is worthless. Are you prepared for that? <laughs> uh, well, whether I'm prepared or not, it's going to come at you. But uh, it really depends on who you talk to. Uh, I talk to people who are doing the supply chains, and they're not—they're listening and they're—they're they're, uh, analyzing it, and they're trying to figure out how to how to how these things work, mm-hmm. and how they're coming back, and how to make them resilient and agile, and and how to respond. So, if you start talking to people who don't do it, who are not uh, part of supply chain, who have very little uh, ability or position to make any differences, oh yeah, it's easy to start complaining about someone else that uh, that you really don't under- things you don't understand. Yes. So so it's going to happen. Whether I'm ready for it or not, that's that's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see when it, if it happens. Mm-hmm. Right now, I'm just talking to students that uh, that really do care about it because they're they're involved with their their supply chains right now. Yes. And also, you know, um, as an individual who understands supply chain management, there's a difference between leaning your supply chain and sort of maximizing profit for your firm and dealing with an acute squeeze. Um, those are two those are two separate issues. So I think for the last 20 years, you know, supply chain management has been about how do we reduce costs? How do we get stuff to the consumer just in time? How do we um, reduce our carrying costs, our cost of inventory? How do we make this as efficient as possible? Now it's the holiday season is coming up and people aren't going to be able to buy gifts that they want because they're not going to be here. Um, So how do we deal with stockouts? And I think that that's not an issue that we've had to deal with, but it's always sort of loomed in the consciousness of anyone studying operations, right? Oh, absolutely. Operations, and especially supply chains. Uh, well, operations is different than supply chains from the way I teach it. And mm-hmm. and, and operations are looking at just, just a, a, a one stage of the supply chain. 
looking at the supply chain, looking at all of it, and uh, looking at your risks upstream, uh, your demands downstream, uh, and it's actually managing uh, the entire supply chain and also uh, uh, interacting with the entire supply chain. Uh, you're absolutely right, David. There, really, where you stand depends on where you sit. I think that could be said a lot in this in this article. I haven't read the article yet, and uh, but uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what they say uh, from their perspective. Uh, our perspective, we're looking from the inside out. They're probably looking from outside in. It really depends on where you sit. Yes, and let's, let's do a quick meta-analysis if you'd like to. The authors of today's op-ed in the New York Times are Chad P. Brown. He's mm -hmm. a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Now, I am sad to plead my ignorance and say I don't know what the Peterson Institute of International Economics, what their deal is, but I imagine that they're relatively professional if he's been tapped to do a op-ed in the New York Times. And his colleague on this op-ed is Douglas A. Irwin, who teaches, he's the John French Professor of Economics at Dartmouth College. Dartmouth, of course, being an Ivy League institution, I'm sure this guy knows a thing or two about economics. If I take away us here on the screen, you can see in his little about, um, he is the author of seven books, an expert on both past and present U.S. trade policy, especially policy during the Great Depression. So that's his academic and professional bona fides. My question to you is, do you think, like you said, where you stand depends on where you sit. Do you think the opinions will be shaped because these people look at things from an economic perspective, not perhaps from an operational or supply chain perspective? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think you need all uh, voices, all perspectives at the table when you start looking at this. And the, the economic perspective is extremely important. Uh, because that that uh, impacts other types of uh, uh, interests, uh, but a supply chain perspective uh, looks at internal efficiencies upstream and downstream, and things that that are feasible. Feasible, the feasibility of uh, accomplishing things that have economic impact, and so you can look at the the uh, long term goal, uh, and that is the the bigger picture, the economic picture to uh, international business. Also the also uh, 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 Doug, Douglas Irwin uh, is also the uh, associate professor. What was he the one? Nope, nope, nope. Chad Brown is also an associate professor uh, at uh, Brandeis okay. uh, in economics. So they're both they're both and and uh, Douglas Irwin is at Dartmouth College. So they're both professors. They're they but they both have that 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 uh, perspective as uh, 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 looking at uh, the detail, but also. An economist will see things very different than, say, uh, uh, an operations uh, research person looking at the efficiency of a, of, a, of a supply chain, the resilience of a supply chain, the agility of a supply chain to respond to different economic uh, input in, uh, uh, needs and, and uh, problems. So this, this I, I expect it to have a much more of a global perspective rather than a, a like feasibility this we can do this to make this happen yes says, here's the need that needs to happen and that's why people are looking at it yeah i think it's fascinating because i did see reports that the uh, the port of la and the port of long beach the west coast's very large ports uh i think the largest 
port in terms of container volume in America is the port of L.A. They went to 24 hours. They used to just work 12 hours a day. And so I think your perspective from whether you're a stevedore, you know, like you're a longshoreman, your perspective is different if you're a longshoreman at the port of L.A. than if you're a longshoreman in Shenzhen or Hong Kong. If you're running the port, if you're like a Hutchinson Wampoa port runner in Shenzhen, your perspective is different than if you're the guy running the port at the port of L.A. Um, And if you're an individual firm that needs goods and services to come from Asia Pacific to the West Coast of the United States, your perspective is different than if you're the guy running the port. And if you're an economist studying the entire economy and how goods and services move within that system, your perspective is different. And at Census of Kauai, our podcast, we always say, listen and listen more than you talk and understand what the other people are saying and listen to all voices. And uh, you need all of those perspectives at the table. And then you need to somehow uh, come to a, 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 a robust type of decision. But the, these kinds of articles and, and these uh, people's views are extremely important and I think are extremely valuable. And you really can't discount them. Uh, even though you might identify uh, weaknesses or uh, lack of uh, uh, lack of uh, uh, focus on certain certain subjects, uh, I think you need to to view them as exactly what they're trying to say. Yeah, because they're probably very very spot on. Uh, I would expect that. Now, yeah, but if you work for a specific industry and there's a part that stops your manufacturing process, you don't care about the global issues. You care that that one part gets into the port, gets onto a truck, and gets to your manufacturing facility. That's all you really care about, that one part. Now, the fact that there's a global supply chain and there's thousands of parts or, you know, the amount of goods that you want to make, you're not going to hit your manufacturing targets, like, or other industries, you don't care about them. You just care about your one thing that's affected. And you could say, hey, you could leave the supply chain problems, just give me my one part so I can ramp up my manufacturing for the holiday season. It's fascinating because, like we always say, where you stand depends on where you sit. Right. And now, the argument for, the argument would be then, well, yeah, if we just looked at the global, then, and if we don't look at our, our day-to-day type operations, we may, not even, we may not even be here tomorrow to even address anything. Mm-hmm. So they're looking at day-to-day. They're looking at, uh, at again, something that's feasible from short-term, medium-term, long-term. And I I also argue, uh, I argue in my class all the time, that you have to look at the short-term to to remain uh, a player. But you have to look look at the long-term to make an impact. So you have, you you gotta do both. Mm -hmm. You have to have both. Now, but the thing is, like you said, if your Q4 sales drop, if you're a firm that does 25 million in sales, and because of the supply chain shortage, you're going to do 15 million in sales. The short term means your 20 employees don't have jobs. That's and right. that's that's impactful. Um, that's right. And that's more important to a lot of companies than something that's long term. So because a lot of companies do care about their employees. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though a lot of people don't believe it, <laughs> a lot of these companies do care about their employees. They, they want to make sure they pay them and get get them their benefits. They Mm -hmm. do care. So I think we've done enough of an intro, correct? I think more than enough. (laughs) All right, we'll start. 
Um, this is from today's New York Times. Why does everyone suddenly care about supply chains? By Chad P. Brown and Douglas A. Irwin. Do you have the article pulled up? Yes, I do. I'll read the first um, paragraph or two, and then we can stop and discuss. And we'll go on for about 30 to 45 minutes. Sound good? Sounds good. Okay. Mr. Brown and Mr. Irwin have written extensively about the history of trade, globalization, and international economics. That's I would their... assume I would assume that's Dr. Brown and Dr. Irwin. Yeah. I would assume. Maybe, they didn't yeah. say that, but I bet it. I'm pretty sure they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving to the article, globalization may have lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, but to its critics, it has long been a dirty word. They associate it with enhancing corporate power, reducing the wages of workers, and deepening divides between the wealthy and everyone else. During the pandemic, globalization has also been blamed for putting the United States into a position of excessive dependence on foreign supplies, as varied as medical equipment and semiconductors. This has led many politicians, Democrats and Republicans, to a subject that was also for a long time a dirty term, industrial policy. They seek a bigger role for the U.S. government in shaping what gets made where. The idea has been championed by Presidents Donald Trump and Biden and members of Congress from conservatives like Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley to progressives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Elizabeth Warren. Okay, that's the intro, right? (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot to unpack there. I would say there's nothing more conservative than having a command economy. Just kidding. That was a joke. <laughs> um, so it's fascinating to me. Yeah, globalization is the enemy, but glo- globalization is free market economics in, in some sense. Um, so going to a command economy is very, it, it's fascinating to me as I think that the globalized economy where there was a free flow of goods and services was fine until we ran into a problem with it. And now it's, what do we do about it, correct? Yes, right. Yeah, and it's interesting that uh, they frame, I, I, they frame the economic uh, globalization uh, and ec- economic uh, uh, parlance and uh, of a, a dirty word they associate with enhancing corporate power, reducing wages of workers, and deepening divides between wealthy and everyone else. And uh, I'm, I, I wonder about that. And I also think it's fascinating that in their article about supply chains, they just mentioned medical equipment and semiconductors. Now, we've done a full episode on the semiconductor shortage about right. the supply chains around semiconductors. We didn't. We started the podcast this year. So when there were shortages of medical supplies, like masks, uh, last year, we weren't doing the podcast. So I guess that begs the question, what else are they going to say? They've framed it very interestingly <laughs> because... They framed it as an issue of grand national economic policy. The supply chain issues mean that the government needs to take a firmer hand in deciding what gets made here. That's not necessarily supply chain management as you know it, right? Not at all. No. Uh, You're um, right. So, David. So moving on, uh, do you want to read from uh, where we left off? Okay, but this enthusiasm for directing billions of dollars at certain industries may not work in today's globalized economy. 
If the point is to focus on clearly defined and agreed upon goals, including some that may involve sacrificing a bit of economic efficiency to achieve national security or pandemic preparedness, then an industrial policy that is entirely domestic may actually backfire. Instead, to succeed, it will take what we think of as a hybrid industrial policy. This would integrate some of the good aspects of globalization, preserve com competition, and coordinate policy with like-minded countries to achieve common objectives. A couple of examples suggest the opportunities and potential pitfalls. Okay, shall we discuss this? This is sort of their thesis, right? Yeah, that, then they say this is what they're, they're talking about, a hybrid. Uh, uh, we'll see what they mean by hybrid and how are they going to be mixing this. Probably a domestic versus uh, uh, international type uh, policy to support the, the supply chains, I, I would imagine. Yes. Now, I think the thesis is that paragraph. To succeed, it will take what we think of as hybrid industrial policy, integrate yeah. some good aspects of globalization, sort of achieve efficiencies, um, have everyone sort of do value add where that it makes sense in their specific market, um, preserve competition and coordinate policy with like-minded countries to achieve common objectives. I think what they mean there is keep China from becoming the dominant producer of semiconductors. <laughs> keep, I don't know. Keep don't China know. from being the front runner in quantum computing. Um, work I with, yeah, I think that's sort of what they're applying though, right? Uh, very well could that could be one uh one out out outcrop of that uh but you know to me i'm thinking of this and it says you know you got to be careful when you have these these types of uh, uh i i would i would uh, urge caution here uh, not not for us but for them uh when you start looking at uh, these kinds of uh, uh politics to solve uh, uh supply chain problems uh, a lot of that's going to be really short, uh, very myopic, mm -hmm. very short term. And uh, what happens is, is you don't necessarily have a long term type of equity growth within uh, a policy within your supply chain in, within your nation. And uh, you have we have been very, very blessed and very lucky over the past couple of centuries that we have been able to build equity by looking at short-term type of uh, goals. But when you look at globalization, uh, the playing field is different. You can't just have the same type of strategy globally that you did domestically whenever it was, you don't, you didn't have the, the same kind of technology you do today. I think the way we built our, our, our country in the 1800s and 1900s, what I'm getting at is it's gonna be very different than the 2000s and 2100s. It's gonna be very different. Hmm. And we have to start thinking about how do we change our approach for the future? And uh, I, I, when I start hearing this kind of thing, I start saying, no, what, wait a minute, let's don't go back to the old ways of creating policy because uh, that may have worked when we were a dominant power. We're no longer that dominant power. So we have to have think of other ways of working. So. I'm not a politician. I'm not in political science. You are. But uh, from from my background and my age, I say we have to be really careful when we move forward. 
yes. looking what has happened in the past. And I hate to bring up examples where I don't have a source, but I remember, do you remember when the market crashed in 2008? Mm-hmm. And we passed the toxic asset relief program and then we funneled money, government money, a trillion dollars worth, more or less, give or take, just a a trill, a cool trill into the economy. And there were projects that could access that money. And I remember reading an article and I wish that I had the source because this always stuck with me. But there were projects where you could do construction and you could use government money. But in order to do that construction, Everything had to be sourced from the United States. Well, a lot of this was um, retail or, um, you know, retail, residential, hybrid type co-living stuff that people wanted to, you know, do expansions. They took government money. Everything had to be sourced from the United States. No one in America made on an escalator, you know, that rubber thing that runs up the rails that you hold on to? There was no American manufacturer of that. There hadn't been for 15, 20 years. This company said, if they want to put an escalator in, they need those rubber things. No one here makes that. If we set up a fabrication, we can charge 15,000% of what you would charge to buy one from China because you can't source those from America. And so uh, because everything had to be sourced in America, there was this massive inefficiency and the price of that one good because no one else had the manufacturing capacity to make it. And I, I, stories like that are fascinating to me. When I think of industrial policy or sort of mandating that everything get made in the U.S., I think of stories like that where it's like, oh, what do they not make here? Let's make that. We'll corner the market. So whatever the rubber galvanizing the machines to make you know, the escalators, however long the escalator is, we can make the little tube, then we fuse it together, the rubber. That's, I mean, in China, it's like, oh, they're doing so much construction there, it makes sense to make those rubber things there. They have more escalators than we do. You know, they're they're doing more construction right now. They're putting in more escalators than we are, and they have a cheaper workforce, access to rubber or whatever. Um, but you need to start making them here, the inefficiencies happen. And I think that's the difficulty. We run into a supply chain issue, and real, we realize there's some goods that are an essential part of our lives that we don't even notice that aren't made here and there's no manufacturing capacity to make them here and to say oh everything needs to be made here you need to ramp that stuff up but that'll cause exploitation and so i i don't know where i'm going with that i'm just saying (laughs) no that's a very good example very good example and and what 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 makes my mind where where it makes my mind go is that uh, they mentioned semiconductors. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think when you talk about an industrial policy or uh, sec- the national security that the supply chain gives a country, that our foreign policy uh, sh- should not be isolationism. It should be somehow uh, creating uh, some type of alliances, uh, not one alliance, but many alliances to where we have a network uh, to where it's going to be uh, uh, robust and and the risk of failing uh, supply chain goes down. A good example of that is the semiconductors. Mm-hmm. When you have just a single channel, uh, that's very vulnerable, very vulnerable. And when that single channel is in a is in one country, that's vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why why start thinking about uh, the uh, uh, a network, not just not just a, a chain? But more of a net, the chain is more of a network. 
in order to uh, shore up uh, our our allies, uh, their, their economies, but also strengthen our ability, uh, the uh, the supply risks that we have uh, for our for our production. Yeah, and I want to go back, cheat, and go back to the article real quick. A couple sure. of examples suggest potential pitfalls, and he's talking about the hybrid industrial policy. And then you see in the next paragraph, uh, the main oh. argument for American industrial policy in both PPE and semiconductors is the risk that foreign sources of supply are too concentrated geographically. That okay. I want to I want to say that because it's easy. That's what I just said. Yes, but it's easy to say, look at 18 months ago. We didn't have enough PPE because we don't manufacture it here. Look at right now. We don't have enough semiconductors because the pandemic caused uh, constraints on the supply chain. It's easy to say that. I bet you there are hundreds, if not thousands of goods that are essential where we don't have American industrial policy that could withstand a squeeze on supply. And it's easy to say, oh, PPE and semiconductors. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. But you don't really know how much you need something until someone starts squeezing you. You don't realize how inelastic the pricing is until someone controls all of the supply. And it's easy to make an argument for, oh, let's build PPE manufacturing here. Let's build semiconductor foundries here. It's difficult to say this thing that we've never had a problem with, let's pay more for it. And, and make it here. And people will say, that doesn't make any sense. Why don't we just source it from where it's cheapest to manufacture? It, I mean, it's a fascinating argument. Because if there's one thing we've learned in the last year, people have a hard time looking ahead. That's, well, the uh, United States has always been that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, don't, we don't look, well, we look ahead, but it's like six months. Mm-hmm. We don't look at five, 10, 15, 20 years. But the idea is that you're absolutely right, David. And so to me, I'm thinking you have to have a different way of looking at uh, uh, foreign policy and foreign resources, uh, a different way of looking at it. It's not just looking at a sole source or just two sources. It's looking at more of a uh, more of a network of a uh, uh, constellation of alliances uh, that we we have we have a network flowing uh, for for security reasons. And I think and that. Going back to the article, you may be touching on what they're about to touch on. Integrating okay. some of the good global aspects of globalization, preserving competition, and coordinating policy with like-minded countries to achieve common objectives. That sounds an awful lot like what you said about a constellation of alliances working right. to ward off supply chain constraints. So back to the article. The main okay. argument for an American industrial policy in both PPE and semiconductors is the risk that foreign sources of supply are too concentrated geographically. For PPE, when the coronavirus hit, the lack of hospital gowns and masks globally, let alone in the United States, set off alarm bells among policymakers. There was extra global supply, but it was stuck mostly in China. To remedy that, the Defense Department spent nearly $1.2 billion. Dozens of American companies now make N95 respirators, surgical masks, hospital gowns, and gloves, and even some of the key raw materials the supply chain needed to ensure production could be secured in the United States. For semiconductors, no one seemed to care just over a year ago about U.S. dependence on high-end chips made in Taiwan and South Korea. But with global shortage, we all do now. 
automakers in particular, and we covered that on a previous episode. Both countries are geopolitical hotspots and not immune to droughts, typhoons, and other natural disasters that can disrupt supply. Congress is using the situation to push ahead with bipartisan legislation for upward of $50 billion in federal subsidies for the American semiconductor industry. But the objective should not be national self-sufficiency at any cost. When the pandemic recedes, there will be less demand for some of these products, and prices will come down. Uh, Shall we continue? Let's see. Let's just let's do let's do one more paragraph. For PPE, okay. that means budget-conscious hospitals will look to buy cheaper, non-American produced options. The U.S. companies will want continuing subsidies or protection from imports. In fact, a group of small companies have already organized organized into the American Mask Manufacturers Association to complain that foreign-made masks are being dumped in the U.S. market, and they may seek tariffs to stop imports. But duties would raise the cost for a healthcare system that is already extraordinarily expensive. Okay, so that's laying out two issues. You start making them here; they're going to be made cheaper elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What do you do about that? <laughs> What's the answer? Tell me the answer to that problem. Uh, well, I see this as just a short-term fix. Uh, you're saying, yeah, let's just. I think I think the prop again, uh, my gut feel, okay, I, I don't have a real solution just on the top of my mind, uh, but my feel from my experience is that these are short-term solutions. And so we, we have knee-jerk reactions to these things. We will solve them, yeah, good, that's a solution. And we'll wait for the next problem to solve that. We'll wait for the next problem to solve that. We'll wait for the next problem to solve that. Instead, let's back up and say, wait a minute. How can we create a policy or a system or or somehow have a, 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 a strategy that's going to be robust enough that it can weather all kinds of, of uh, attacks and events or all kinds of even future pandemics? Uh, why not start thinking about that? Now, you can't just think about that. You have to think a short term, but don't just think a short term. Don't just think a long term. Why can't we start doing them both and say for the short term, we're doing this. And while we have that, let's start shoring up the long term type of ability uh, to react to these things in the future. I'm saying an industrial policy should, uh, I think we maybe change the name of an industrial policy to something more of a of, of, a, of a global uh, integrated policy of global economics or global supply chains. I don't want to say economics because I'm not an economist, but global supply chain security uh, that that is going to be universal. We have a lot of technology today. A lot of technology is coming on board. It's rising. It's growing very, very quickly that when we start using it, if we start building it, it can be it can impact. Uh, our global supply chain significantly. Uh, and I don't want to get into the technology. Maybe we can have other podcasts talking about the technology you know, with, with cloud computing and artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, 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 blockchain uh, security and, and communications. So there's a lot of things going on that can have those kinds of objectives within an international policy. That's Those are kind of things I'd like to see uh, our government working with other governments doing not just protecting ourselves at home 
Yeah. If you protect yourselves at home, but don't protect your neighbor, you're at risk. Mm-hmm. Period. You're at risk. You can't you can't survive in a world where you just protect yourself and you don't protect your neighbor. I yeah, I think that the the thing about what you said, and I'll cheat again and read ahead because the, the first sentence of the next paragraph, the industrial policy goal should be to preserve the right of domestic capacity to be at the ready for the next health emergency with the equally important objective of keeping medical costs low. I think that's an industry-specific thing. So it's like we just had a pandemic. And you know what the most important thing in the world is? To be prepared for the next pandemic. Yes, that's important. But there are a lot of threats. And there's a lot of threats we're not prepared for. And we can prepare for the next pandemic. And then the threat that hits is perhaps more asymmetrical. Uh, Climate change-related washing out of our ports. And they say, oh, well, we need to spend another $10 billion to make sure that our ports, our seaports, don't get washed away by climate change in the next 20 years because we lost one and that was a $5 billion loss. It's, um, it's easy to say, look at this thing that caused this problem. We need to fix this problem. But I think that the, the thing was that we didn't see that it could be a problem. And what else is there that we're not seeing that could be a problem? Yeah, good points, David. Very good point. Because, I mean, it's easy to say, oh, look at these two markets. This is what I was saying before. Look at these two markets, semiconductor, PPE. They were, we were both unprepared. We were unprepared in both of these markets for the effects of the pandemic. So what we need to do is make sure that the next time there's a pandemic, we are prepared. And it's like in those two markets or in every single market that's essential. Like right. would, a, would a threat that wasn't like a pandemic but still caused disruptions affect other markets? And how are we prepared for those threats? You know, what's the likelihood of those threats? How prepared do we need to be? How much do we need to onshore production of X industry, Y industry, Z industry that weren't affected by the pandemic, but may be affected by some other threat? And is that the solution to bring everything onshore? Mm-hmm. I mean, or, yeah, I guess it's like, how do you deal with it? It's using this specific threat as a case study for how you shore up resiliency in this industry. And then I guess you can extrapolate shoring up supply chain resiliency and PPE to other industries that would be of vital importance. Is that what do you think their methodology is? Uh, Very likely, because it is the uh, historically policy has been very reactive, not necessarily proactive. And it's reactive only when they see a problem. Mm -hmm. So let's solve that problem instead of Let's be proactive and create a system to where we can mitigate uh, uh, problems, you know, to have more more of a risk risk uh, mitigation uh, attitude toward policy, and, and also building up supply chains. And so, what what other type of also uh, when I talk of, when I think about supply chains, when I it's a little bit off subject, but when when we think of of the strength of a nation's economy and the supply chains. So we're just talking about PPE and semiconductors. Mm-hmm. What about every supply chain? What about all the other supply chains that our industry is based on? And do though when you look at all those supply chains, uh, where does those where do those supply chains start? It's on the commodity side. So how are we how are we looking at our natural resources? From our from our natural resources, 
and and uh, international natural resources that are the, the the basic commodities that could be handled very differently than specialized technical equipment. And we have to have a different policy for those two types of uh, products mm-hmm. or those two types of commodities. So you have to be really careful how you approach. You need people at the table in Washington. You need uh, supply chain people at the table who understand not just the economics, but also the feasibility of of having a robust, secure, uh, and uh, progressive, agile, resilient type supply chains, so that we can have a protected, uh, we can protect ourselves and protect our neighbors in the future. And our neighbors, it starts with Canada and Mexico and in Europe and and even in the Pacific. And so we need to start thinking in that. I would say think in that direction. Mm-hmm. I, I think what you're getting at is the semiconductor manufacturing thing. We don't have the foundries here. We don't have the capacity. A lot of the foundries are in Taiwan and South Korea, whether it's Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation or Samsung. Um, they're the foundries. Now, the foundries are just one step in the supply chain. The foundries need silicon wafers. Like without the silicon wafers, you can't manufacture semiconductors. Um Who's responsible for sourcing the silicon wafers? Not the foundries. So the person at the foundries, that's where you see the bottleneck. But what if there's a bottleneck further down? The, is that what you're saying? That's what if exactly there's a what bottleneck further down the supply chain? Exactly. Exactly. There's going to be another one on the, the silicon sources. Mm-hmm. So, okay, well, we'll make these wafers with different types of, we can manufacture silicon. Well, that's really expensive. You mm-hmm. know? <laughs> yeah. We don't mine it. We don't mine it. We'll manufacture it. Fine. But good grief, that's going to be... 10 times, 100 times more expensive. But so the idea is that, uh, you know, there's silicon everywhere, uh, but it's not necessarily uh, industrial grade. So how do you, how do you, so looking at, that's just one supply chain, looking at all your supply chains, you need people at the table who are saying, uh, you can't do all this yourself. And I think things are happening so rapidly these days that uh, you don't have time yeah, you're going to run out of money, resources, uh, ability uh, to respond to all these fires to put them out. You have to start thinking about how do you uh, keep the fires from starting. Yes. And I do think also, and this is sort of, I don't want to demonize China, but a company with, I mean, a country with a more command economy, where you've seen that the CCP has a lot of control, a lot of buying power, a lot of ability to spend money, a lot of ability to spend money and take a loss in the name of progress, they're more likely to say, this rare earth mineral is extraordinarily important to the manufacture of a good that everyone needs. What if we corner that market? What if we corner that market at a $15 billion loss a year for the next 20 years? And then we'll have the world on its knees because that'll be that'll be an inelastic price and we'll have 100% of the supply. They're more likely to do something like that than a mining company. A mining company can't say, oh, let's stay there at a loss for the next 20 years. And let's just funnel money into this project because it eventually will pay off. Uh, corporations are less able to do that than countries are. And I guess that's what they're sort of arguing for. There's going to need to be investments made, like with industrial policy, where you're securing your, your future, you know, your national security. You're securing key markets that are essential to the operation of a modern society um, under your control and not letting anyone else sort of corner those markets. 
right now we're in a position where we can negotiate with uh, with people but when we negotiate it shouldn't be one-sided and so along those lines just just let me throw out an idea is that how do you negotiate say someone like china uh first of all know how they think know what they think how they think what their goals are this is what they want uh and it's not what we we have so let's say let's, uh, presumably let's say we have two different different approaches uh to growth okay well if we understand what they want and we understand what we want uh let's see where the common ground is to where uh they can become strong and we can become strong but we don't really uh we're not really a threat to one another mm-hmm. T- together we can be strong in our own ways but not necessarily a threat to one another so we keep each other in check in that state. And you say, well, if we do that with China, why can't we do that with, with every other country uh, across the nation? They're all going to have different levels of, of influence. But collectively, everyone kind of agree on a certain approach on collectively we're going to have. Maybe I'm talking way back on the, the League of Nations. I'm not a politician. But all I see is, is that uh, uh, we need to have uh, more of a, uh, a collaborative a pro- approach, a progressive, a progressive collaborative approach to our supply chains for a national for not just national security, global security in the future. Because when people die in Europe and Africa, uh, when people die in South America and Asia, that should bother us. And we should do something about that because if we can't keep our neighbors safe, then we're not going to be safe. Mm-hmm. I anyway, mean, but so, more more people have died here than every other country from the coronavirus. There you go. So there what are go. what are they doing for us? <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, moving on. Uh, do you want to read this next paragraph? Okay, where are we? The industrial policy. Mm-hmm. Okay, the industrial policy goal should be to preserve the right amount of domestic capacity to be at the ready for the next health emergency with the equally important objective of keeping medical costs low. Targeting government subsidies, as well as regulations that medical, that medical distributors, states and hospital systems hold more emergency inventory than they did heading into the pandemic would be better industrial policy than blunt trade restrictions and blank checks. Well, that that that's one approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, for semiconductors, congressional efforts to shift capacity to the United States through subsidies pose additional challenges. The potential good news is that the bulk of the subsidies might be one-time payments that provide equal opportunity to leading-edge manufacturers, not just American businesses, but also some abroad like Taiwan's TSMC and South Korea's Samsung. Yet there is no guarantee that the foreign companies would start making their leading edge products on American soil. In fact, they are less likely to do so if Washington continues to adopt unilateral export control policies that can limit where American-made semiconductors can be sold, i.e. not China. And there are also downsides to bringing back production. The United States is not immune to geographically concentrated risks. As February's Arctic storm in Texas revealed, 
when a disruption to the electric grid, electrical grid temporarily, temporarily shuttered a cluster of semiconductor, semiconductor plants. And if the cost of chips made in America are too high for automakers, keeping those product lines going may require more than just those one-off payments to companies. So they're just really posing the problems that we have of like like single sourcing things, yeah. uh, which is really true. Single sourcing things is very dangerous. Uh, it's very cheap. It's efficient. Uh, it, it's, it's cheap and efficient short term. But the risks are pretty great. We start looking at the risk side of things, mm-hmm. the local risk side and the global risk side of things. It's fascinating. Um, I think of Samsung. I just think of cell phones. They released a Galaxy series or maybe it was one of their Note series. And in the U.S., we got the Qualcomm chips. And I think in Korea and in Europe, they got the Exynos chips, which is Samsung's in-house brand. But the thing was, in the U.S., some of the supply was also Exynos chips, and the Qualcomm chips outperformed the Exynos chips. They're supposed to be the equivalent. Um, I I, I don't really understand. And I think that I'm not sure if Samsung manufacturers Qualcomm chips or if it's exclusively TSMC. But I don't understand the difference between Apple. They design Apple Silicon. They design the A14 Bionic. They design the M1 that's in their desktop computers. Qualcomm designs the Snapdragon 855 that's in your cell phone. Exynos is Samsung's in-house brand. How those brands are different than the, the companies that have foundries that actually make the chips. So there's a difference between chip design and chip manufacturing. And that that makes sense to me. I don't know because, I mean, Samsung does both. They design Exynos chips and then they manufacture chips for third parties as well. Um, I don't know how that business really works. And so this guy's saying, oh, just pay the foundries to build factories here. And I don't know if that's a feasible economic model for those specific businesses. Um, and I think it's easy to come up with solutions but, I mean, I love that show, The Office, and they say, Dwight knows paper. And it's like there is a nuance to every industry. And I think that a 300-mile-high um, view of an economist saying, oh, we just do one-off payments to Samsung or TSMC, and we have them build big foundries here, and we have more of the chip manufacturing onshore. I, yes, anyone will take your money if you give them enough money to build a, a foundry. It's just... Will it necessarily work? Um, So answering a question is not the same as solving a problem. So, yeah, giving money can answer the question of can we make this? Yes, I can make it. But that doesn't solve the problem necessarily. Mm -hmm. Uh, The problem is, I think, is much, much bigger, and much greater than this. Uh, And that is uh, looking at the risk. Again, the risk is one is is another perspective. It's not the only perspective, it's one perspective. Looking mm-hmm. at the risk, short-term, long-term, sustainability, and all kinds of things. And you have other types of issues, uh, 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 part of the decision matrix as well. Yeah, like for instance, and this is a this is a dumb example, but let's do it. <laughs> Why not? It's our podcast, right, David? Yeah. <laughs> um, Go for it. Okay, so... I could say to myself, this image is no good of me on the screen right now. You know Mm -hmm. what I need to do? 
I need to go to Best Buy and buy the most expensive camera they have there. What is it? Two grand? <laughs> three grand? This webcam, uh-huh. it's just not cutting the mustard. Because oh, it's so dark. It's Your so face dark. It's dark. It's dark. For those who are just listening, it's dark. You, you just. You see just a, it's an image. You can't really see your face. It's all dark. Yes. So I could say to myself, you know what I need? This $100 webcam that I use to do the podcast, no good. What I need is a $5,000 cinema camera to do the podcast. And then I'll look good. Or I could go on Amazon and buy lights for 20 bucks. And if you're watching, you'll see... Boom, there you go. Oh, the image is better. How about that? It's, it's perfect. You can see everything. <laughs> you can see your background. You can see, yeah, it's nice. Yeah. It's nice. It's as good as a $5,000 camera. Especially for what we're doing. It's not like we're filming right. Jurassic Park here. We're, we're doing a podcast. <laughs> That's right. So uh, sometimes the solution, yeah, you can throw money at any problem. I'm sure that a Sony A7S um, hooked into my computer via a capture card could handle the low light scenario of not having lights much better than this webcam. But that doesn't mean that I need one. Um, so I, I, the easiest solution to any problem is throw money at it. Would you not agree? <laughs> so you could answer the question, how do you get a better picture by a $5,000 camera? Mm-hmm. Does that answer? Yeah, that's an answer. Does that solve the problem? Well, a better solution is just... Turn up the lights. Turn up the lights. <laughs> Just turn up the lights. Oh, that works too. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's yeah, it's, David, that's a silly example, but it's a good example to where a lot of times if you look at, look at a global economic perspective on a supply chain problem, uh, sometimes you come up with, uh, with uh, solutions that, uh, again, sometimes they sound good, uh, and they might be good partially, mm-hmm. but not completely, and it might cause other problems. Yes. So I think you need a much more. You need a, you need a lot of people at the table, and a lot of people making these decisions. And also, I think a lot of times, and this happens in personal finance, it happens microeconomically at the country company level, and it happens macroeconomically at the national economy level. If someone presents to you a solution with a higher price tag, you think it's superior. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of truth to that because some things that don't change from decade to decade, from century to century is people. Mm-hmm. And when they make a decision, they see a higher price tag, they will think maybe it's better. It's like, I'm, I really need to solve this problem. This solution's 5,000, this solution's 50. I'm sure the $5,000 solution will work better. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back to the article, I, we were actually we're going long on this short article, uh, but a better made in America is the headline. For both economic and security reasons, more geographic diversification is needed. A better made in America policy would allow for globalized production chains, particularly with trusted suppliers in like-minded countries. This implies that if the goal is to diversify away from China or for certain items like semiconductors, Taiwan, Taiwan or South Korea, the United States 
and its allies should take a coordinated approach that requires setting limits on government payments to industry and working out who in the supply chain does what, a high level of policy cooperation. Without such coordination, even like-minded countries might end up in bidding wars to get ever larger subsidies to lure semiconductor manufacturers to their shores. That could result in industry excess capacity, trade disputes, and tariffs that close off markets. This is not a fanciful scenario. The United States and the European Union have long fought over counterproductive agricultural subsidies. The two And the two sides recently resolved a costly long-running battle over subsidies to Boeing and Airbus that also included tariffs on completely unrelated goods like wine and cheese. I will say that studying political science, agricultural subsidies are absolutely a security issue. So in advanced Western democracies, um, the cost of food production from a market standpoint is easy to just say, we don't need to produce food here. It doesn't make enough money. So you subsidize agriculture because controlling your own food supply is absolutely a national security issue. Um, does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. You're um, right. Um, let's just finish the article so we can finish the episode. Sound good? Furthermore, at the same moment, the United States is working with other major economies to eliminate tax havens and impose a global minimum tax on multinational corporations. Governments should not be competing to hand tax revenue back to those companies some other way. The Biden administration seems willing to try this coordinated approach. At the Group of Seven Summit in June, the administration agreed to a proposal highlighting both PPE and semiconductors that aspire to achieve, quote, open, diversified, secure, and resilient supply chains, end quote. In a summit in September, the administration and the European Union agreed to try to avoid a semiconductor subsidy race and the risk of crowding out private investments that would themselves contribute to our security and resilience. Cooperating on the details will prove hard. A hybrid industrial policy is extremely difficult to achieve, but it is also the one most likely to work. It accepts for security reasons some costs to moving some production away from where it is currently abroad, but without requiring self-sufficiency and a complete unraveling of international production chains that give Americans access to the best products at reasonable prices. It accepts that some coordination with allies is necessary, but seeks to avoid managed trade or government-protected cartels that reduce competition. In short, it relies on a sound economic strategy in the service of national security. There we go. There we go. Uh, they they propose some interesting interesting uh, perspectives and ideas. Yes, very, I think it's a good article. Very good article. It's basically saying a consortium of allies should coordinate their supply chains at a multinational level. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. Yep. Now, here's the issue that I see. The United States, you know, we're a security powerhouse. We have the biggest, most powerful military in the world. We sign a security alliance with Australia. That's in large part to sort of bolster their presence in the Asia, Oceania area against China, an English-speaking ally. We ink a deal for nuclear submarines, and here comes Macron all but hurt because they were going to sell Australia diesel submarines. And that became a flashpoint. And I think that what he said, it, I mean, it's true. 
um, a hybrid industrial policy is difficult to achieve. Um, the details, cooperating on the details will prove hard. I mean, it's all well and good until, you know, maybe your diesel submarine manufacturer is the main funder of your re-election campaign in France, and you lose that contract for them. And you say, this is disastrous for me on a domestic political level. And you say, I'm not going to cooperate with the U.S. on their next economic initiative to help shore up the supply chain for the allies. Because, I mean, it, countries, they're rational actors, but individuals as well um, are... Uh, individuals have a say in what happens. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, I I think uh, the next sentence, hybrid industrial policy is extremely difficult to achieve, but it is, it is also the one most likely to work. Okay, so it, it's easy to say that. The question is, how do you do it? Mm-hmm. And I think in order to do it, to do it, you need a lot of a lot of voices at in the room, a lot of people at the table making these decisions and also putting things together. Mm-hmm. And it's not just in each country, it's not just in a country, it's in all the countries. So they have to have some kind of a collective type of agreement on how they're gonna start approaching things. Uh, but when you start doing that, the hybrid industrial policy, the policy from a United States perspective is gonna be different than a European perspective than a Pacific, uh, Southern Pacific perspective, because we have different uh, different challenges, different needs, different economies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there has to be some type of a uh, uh, give and take uh, for the different players uh, with within a hybrid strategy. It's a it's very difficult, but I think maybe the solution is not having something that works. It's having uh, an attitude of moving towards something that you hope works, <laughs> that you want to work a certain way that you may never achieve it. But the key is moving in that direction mm-hmm. and moving in that direction. You have that mindset. And so you might not be there, but you have a mindset, a goal that you want to achieve. And sometimes that's probably the best thing to do because in your decisions will have that type of a attitude toward toward making a hybrid type decision, mm-hmm. if you see what I'm saying. Yes. And the fascinating thing about this article is that you teach supply chain management, and there's very little supply chain management in this article. Now, right. we did an episode on the semiconductor shortage months ago, because this has been going on for months. And what we learned was it's a $1 display driver, old technology. And when the pandemic hit, the economic uncertainty caused the auto manufacturers in America to cancel their contracts with the semiconductor foundries. Well, as a result of the pandemic, there was more demand for display drivers in consumer electronics. And so all of that capacity got booked into contracts by technology companies, companies that make your monitor, companies that make you know, other displays. And is this a failure of the semiconductor industry to have enough capacity? Or is it the failure of the auto industry to hold on to their contracts um, for a $1 part that could considerably slow their manufacturing process? So you know, maybe the, a supply chain manager failed. Oh, we're going to cut the, well, we're not going to, we're going to make 100,000 fewer cars. We could save $100,000 if we cancel this $100,000 contract for $1 display drivers. 
and that hundred thousand dollar decision is going to cost them a hundred million. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. But uh, let me ask you, David, uh, that kind of decision by individual companies within a country, uh, how does that fold into a country making industrial policies between nations with supply chains? So you know you do have a common, you have a connection between you know, the, the government making decisions and the individual industries making decisions. Yeah, because the capacity will get snatched up. I think it's it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, if you sell me an Acer monitor, 1080p, you know, I go down to Costco and buy it for 129 bucks. Uh, the chip manufacturer gets their two bucks. Acer has a $10 built-in profit margin with Costco. Costco makes 10 bucks on it. And it's like, and then that $1 display driver's used. If you put that into a Ford F-150, the amount of industries that benefit from the manufacture of a Ford F-150 is greater. So does the government need to step in and say, they were dumb to cancel their contracts. You need to shift manufacturing to their contract. You know, you need to defy the contract that these people swooped in and, and, and ate up when you canceled your, like, does the government need to do that? These companies made a bad decision. Yeah, there you go. Again, that's answering a question. It's not necessarily solving a problem. And that could create other problems mm-hmm. with the government telling com- companies what to do. So it's, it's, it's a, as would say in England, it's a sticky wicket, David. <laughs> it's a sticky wicket. It reminds me, <laughs> it reminds me of a, there's a mouse problem. So they, re- they, they release the snakes. And the snakes <laughs> take over the town. And so they bring in some mongoose, mongooses. And the mongooses take over the town. And it's like, oh, man, I, like, I think that one of the dangers is let's change how we've always done things to fix this specific problem. And the structural change that you bring about causes a new problem that you didn't anticipate. That's, that's definitely uh, a possibility, right? Absolutely. That's, that's change management, configuration management. You know, how do you configure a change to make sure that you don't create more problems than you had before? Mm-hmm. You have to configure a change within a system to make sure that you understand the system. And so how do you understand a system from a politician's view? You don't. You have to have all the players at the table. And that, that's been a problem with our country for a long time. Yeah, I always make a joke around election time that, uh, like... You know, if the Senate or the House, you don't know which party will end up with one more representative and therefore have a majority. It's like, yeah, do you think that the Democrats can take back the Senate? Or, you know, do you think that the the Republicans can take back the House? And I always make a joke, and it's sad because it is a joke, because people always recognize it as a joke. I say, well, I think that regardless of who wins, they're all going to work together to do what's best for the American people. (laughs) And the thing is, people laugh. It's like, oh, that's that's a good one, good one. And it's like, that's literally their job. <laughs> you know, that's what they're that's what they're supposed to do. It's like, do you think that we should sign um, this quarterback or that quarterback? Like, well, regardless of who we choose, I'm sure he's going to do his best to try to win games for the Denver Broncos. If you laughed at that, like, ha, no. If we sign the other one, he's going to try to sabotage the Denver Broncos. It's like people don't believe that about football players. Why do they believe that about Congress people? So I don't know where I'm going with that, <laughs> but in terms of industrial policy, there's a lot of dollars at stake in a lot of districts. 
So well, con- congressmen I, will have a, a stake in what type of industrial policy gets passed, and there will be personal politics or individualized politics involved in that. I guess that's well, my point. Uh, yeah, well, to me, the point that I pull, pull from what you said, the argument would be, well, you know, uh, if it's a Democrat or Republican, when, when they, they're there to serve the American people and, and make good policy for America. Uh, but usually they're from, they look like what they do is that they just make sure they keep their seat and they shore up their, uh, their constituencies at home to make sure that their, their party is strong. And then the country comes fourth or fifth. Mm-hmm. Okay. But in supply chains and what we're talking about here. Uh, when you start having these policies, well, government's going to be first, and then maybe individual countries are going to be, uh, companies are gonna, within a country are going to be next. Uh, foreign countries, uh, foreign companies, uh, that's part of your supply chain is going to be down the stream, you know. And then finally, the the uh, actual people who receive these goods and services are way down the list. Mm-hmm. You know, should we should that be topsy turvy? You know. Yeah. Should, should that, should, that, should that be thought of a whole different way? Well, people are not going to change. People aren't going to think that way. Uh, they, well, hopefully we, we can migrate to that if we start thinking that way. And uh, I, think, I think in order to achieve those kinds of lofty goals, you have to think about it. You have to talk about it. You have to agree to move in that direction and start th- doing things today to move in that direction. If you never start, you'll never get there. Mm-hmm. And just start start down that path of thinking about these things. That, that I think that's what needs to be done. And I think that's what Chad Brown and Douglas Irwin are saying in today's New York Times op-ed entitled, What's the Big Deal? What's the deal with supply chains? <laughs> uh, what's it called? Um, why does why? everyone suddenly care about supply chains? Um, Why does everyone suddenly care about what? Actually, first of all, uh, the, the title. When I saw that title, I say, first of all, uh, the everyone. Well, everyone is not suddenly comparing, uh, caring about it. There's a lot of people who've always compa- uh, cared about it. Uh-huh. So that's one thing. And suddenly, it's not suddenly. Uh, there's been people cared about supply chains ever since supply chain started. And those are people who do the supply chains. They yeah. really do care about it. And the business people who know how dependent how dependent they are. So it's not everyone suddenly. I think suddenly uh, the global, the people who've never thought about it are thinking about it mm-hmm. now because now they're being hurt by it. Yes. And so uh, that to me, that brings up another issue, another, another, uh, 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 Another fact that that people never really consider things unless they're hurt by it yeah. or it helps them, you know. So, again, we are much more reactionary than proactionary. So so that that title alone kind of like uh, begs the question, like, well, why do people that never thought of this before, are they thinking about it now? Mm-hmm. That's to true. Me, it's... That's that's what it's saying. It's like, why do people care about getting clean water from their taps? You'd only write that article when dirty water came out of your tap. Right. And our people are getting diseases or dying from yeah. from diseases coming out of the tap. Like if they live in Michigan yeah. or something. 
or you know, or you, you no longer have the ability uh, for sewage. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things that people don't think about that's so critical, so crucial. You know, clean water, uh, clean air, clean uh, 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 sewage of human waste, mm-hmm. uh, and other countries that don't have that, they they have a they have a problem. Yeah, if you have sewage backing up into your basement or crawl space, you're going to care a lot more about that than someone who doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I mean, it's I, it's the, the the squeaky wheel gets the grease, I suppose, is the moral of this. And I will say before we leave, this did not answer the question of why everyone care, suddenly cares about supply chains. This proposed that they they want a multi governmental panel of like minded countries to work together to sort of have some sort of hybrid solution to a supply chain crisis. That's currently happening. They've singled out two industries, and yet I don't think, um, like they said, the devil's in the details. There's a lot of work. This is, don't move everything onshore. As economists, we think that's a bad idea. Find out amongst the people that were willing to control these markets, who gets what, and all work together. Work together for an equitable solution among like-minded countries. That's what they're saying, basically. Well, I think the title is used to say here are two areas that there's been a problem mm-hmm. and now that we see that now we suddenly we we, we all of a sudden the, the issue of supply chains is brought to the forefront uh because of these these two examples so uh, i don't think they're saying that this is all there is to, to do but maybe we should think of just like you said more of a more of an industrial policy uh looking at our industries looking at the uh the security of supply chains. I've been saying this all year uh, in my classes that uh, the supply chain is much more than just an economic security. It's a national security, uh, like you like subsidizing agriculture. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we need to we need to shore up supply chains uh, just as much as our food supply. We have our supply chain supply, and so and that's in all types of industries. So if our if our if our economy today in, in the globalization of industry, globalization of uh, decisions and information, uh, globalization of technology, uh, globalization of people. Uh, when we have this globalization in all facets of our of our, our living and, and existence, then we have to start caring about uh, these supply chain issues mm-hmm. in order in order to be secure and not just secure for uh, ourselves, but secure for other people. And other people in other other uh, uh, arenas, other continents, other countries, they should care just as much as we do uh, to have something that's going to be more robust uh, and so that we can mitigate uh, future uh, bad players. Uh, we, could, we could have a whole episode on, on the blockchain concept uh, within supply chains, uh, global supply chains. How can you keep people honest in the, these supply chains? Yeah. Anyway, it's a big it's a it's I think it's a much more important topic than people have ever given uh, notice to because mm-hmm. it's never been a problem. Yeah. Uh or it's, it's never been a problem for people that matter. I think that's why <laughs> that's why people are noticing it. I think the supply chain issues have and uh, supply chain issues have affected people all over the globe a lot. I mean, where there's famine, where there's starvation, where there's and those people, I mean, the fact that they didn't get enough food aid and they died of starvation 
is a tragedy. Um, and that's a supply chain issue, I suppose. I mean, a manufacturing issue. I'm not sure exactly. But now, now that it's affecting industries that are of vital importance to the world's most developed countries, all of a sudden it's at the forefront. And that's why everyone, everyone suddenly cares about supply chains. Um, well, historically, historically, when there's a supply chain problem, they solve that one problem. They solve, they solve the problem that they have. They don't really solve the problem of a uh, supply chain for the next the next uh, uh, event that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so what they're saying is that what these authors are saying is that we should start thinking of, of looking at how to solve this thing in the future. Yeah. Not just just one at a time. Let's look, let's look at systems uh, such that these problems will not be problems anymore. Yep. And I think we can leave it there. This has been the Sons of Sequoia podcast. Uh, we're available live on YouTube and also wherever you get your podcasts. So please feel free to subscribe and like this video if you're watching it or subscribe to the podcast if you're listening to it via audio. That's where I'll leave it. Is there anything you'd like to say? Keep on talking, uh, but listen more than you talk and Try to understand what the other person is saying.